Okay, for our next message, will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Apostasy of Ahaz. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here on another beautiful Sabbath day with an eventful week of nice wintry weather. So, as it was said, the title of my message today is The Apostasy of Ahaz. Ahaz, if you know who that is, was the 12th king of the kingdom of Judah. And we find the story of his life in 2 Kings chapter 16, as well as 2 Chronicles, this 28th chapter. And you can see that his name's brought up or things about him in various parts of the prophetic books of the Bible. I stole the title, and I was mentioning this in our meeting earlier, the title of my message comes from actually the section in my study Bible, the Nelson study Bible, of Second uh, Kings 16, verses 10 through the 20th verse. And it's the apostasy of Ahaz. And it's interesting because, I mean, that's a religious term. That's not a term that we typically use probably in our normal vocabulary. And so I went to the dictionary, just to read what that word means. We, we've heard that before, apostasy, and if you were to look at the English word apostasy in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, I found two quick definitions. An act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. And another definition was the abandonment of a previous loyalty, a defection. And so for this message today, it's it's going to involve us looking at King Ahaz and briefly going over his reign as the king of Judah. But I want to look at his reign and the things that are involved, which, as we may well know, aren't so much of good things. But I want to, at the end, briefly look at some spiritual applications or principles that we can derive, that we can infer from his short reign here over the kingdom of Judah. Well, it wasn't too short, but it was shorter than some. And so in order to do this, I think that I just want to quickly over, give you an overview of some basic facts that many of us already know, but I think it's uh, because if you're like me, when I read the history of the kings, it gets a little fuzzy sometimes because not all the kings, uh, you know, sometimes they reign at the same time, sometimes they're co-regencies, sometimes... There's some differences in the timeline from the Kings and the Chronicles. So it's always good, in my opinion, when you look at this section of the Bible, just to kind of get straight some of the basic facts. One of them was, is that Israel, we know around the year, somewhere approximately around the year, 931 B.C., after Solomon, that the nation of Israel that was united became divided. And in the north became the kingdom of, the, of Israel, and in the south became known as the kingdom of Judah. In the north, the kingdom of Israel had approximately somewhere around 20, 19 to 20 kings. And this nation would fall eventually in 722 B.C. to the famous or infamous empire that we know as the Assyrian Empire. In the south, Judah likewise had 19 kings and one queen. And it would fall a little bit later to another infamous empire, the Babylonians. And so when we look at 2 Kings chapter 16 or 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we know that Ahaz began reigning when he was around 
20 years of age. And he reigned somewhere around 16 years. And this is where it gets just a little confusing because some say that Ahaz actually began being a co-king with his father maybe a few years before this. But his rule started and it lasted approximately 16 years and it was really just before the collapse of the northern kingdom in Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel up there in the north. So we read, and we're going to pick it up here in, in 2 Kings, the 16th chapter. We know that this king, King Ahaz, he's not going to be the first bad king over the kingdom of Judah. But unfortunately, he's going to set a new precedent. He's going to set some new lows for Judah. And one of the things that I want us to remember as we study this individual briefly today is that his actions don't just have consequences for himself, but those that he ruled over. And it's a thing that we have to remember, and I think it's interesting when we read the Bible, and I know I've said this before, we have a book that doesn't just give us stories of all the godly men and women in the Bible. Because I think that God knows, as we as human beings, we can learn just as much from the stories of the successes and the righteousness of men as we can of the unrighteousness and the evil, unfortunate ways that sometimes mankind turns or chooses to turn from. And so let's pick it up just in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And some of this I'm going to read today, and some of this I'm going to just kind of list, because we have two sets of chapters. We have 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. And so, I'm going to start reading here in verse 1 of 2 Kings 16. It says, In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramelah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. Verse 4, And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Now, one of the verses that really I think I want to, us to take notice of is that verse 3 we see the statement that not only does Ahaz fail to do what was right in the sight of the Lord as God or follow after the ways of his father David, but it says that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now this is the first time that we see a king in Judah be likened to a king in the north, a king of Israel. Because if you remember, maybe some of your studies of the kings of Israel, all 20 kings in Israel, not a single one of them followed after God's covenant. None of them were ever said to be righteous kings. All of them would fall after paganism, would promote evilness, and would not just promote it, but would engage in it and, and, and align themselves with other pagan nations as well. One of the abominations that Ahaz engaged in was that it was said that he made his son pass through the fire. 
He made his son. In this day and in most part of the world, one of the pagan practices of many of the different people groups was to sacrifice children to appease different gods. And I'm no expert in what all religions that this was involved or, or what all different religious ideas uh, were associated with this children sacrifice, but we know that Moloch was one of the gods during this period of time. And I did read something, and I don't know exactly how accurate it was, but it said that in this day and age, Moloch being one of the Canaanite gods, that they would make an image of Moloch, and they would wait until it was, it was like maybe cast iron of some sort, and they would wait until it was just a blazing fire, just red as all get out, and they would place that infant child on that, that image. Now, this is pretty sick stuff. And unfortunately, I think that sometimes we read this in the Bible and we don't realize how common some of these things were. We see this as a reference or it's referenced earlier in 2 Kings. For example, verse 27, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 27, where the king of Moab was said to have grabbed his eldest son and sacrificed him. And we also see a reference to this in Jeremiah, the 19th chapter. Let's go to Jeremiah 19, because I want to just point this out real quick. There's something that caught my eye in studying this, because we know that God has spoke of this before. When we read the Bible, when we read the children of Israel, before they went into the promised land, God referenced this evil practice. But in chapter 19 of Jeremiah, verses 1 through 6, during this period of time of Judah and Israel falling prey into these Canaanite rituals and these evil practices, we says, thus says the Lord, verse 1 of Jeremiah 19, go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the post-shirt gate. And proclaim there the words that I will tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of Yahweh. Hear the word of the Almighty. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Verse 4. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. They have made this a place that's unrecognizable to what he had intended for Israel or the kingdom of Judah to be. Because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known. And have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Now, the reason I brought this out and I wanted to bring this out was because I think that there's an, some interesting wording here in Jeremiah. Verse 5, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Now, I think because we read and we're getting ready to read, there was reference of God warning Israel when they were going into the promised land not to engage themselves in these practices. But I think that it's saying this, which nor did it come into my mind, is a use of language that God is using, that it's so grotesque, so evil, 
so abominable that thoughts and the ideas like this is almost so far from what our righteous God can even in himself and his holiness behold or even think of. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And then later on, when you read 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, which, by the way, just to remind you, it is a parallel chapter to to 2 Kings, the 16th chapter. So, similar to the Gospels, when we read the Gospels, we might hear a story from, say, Matthew, and that same story is in Luke. And there's similarities, but there might be some differences, but it's the same story. We have the same thing when it comes to the Kings and the Chronicles. A lot of times they're parallel stories. One of them might have a little bit more information or a little bit less or maybe a little bit different. And so we know that even though God said here that it didn't even enter into my mind, Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, verse 31 It talks about this nefarious practice of burning children, verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And so this was something that the Israelites, their ancestors, the ones that that, that were in the wilderness, that were listening to the words of the law that was coming down from God, that God spoke of to them. And we know that this is all throughout the, you know, first five books, or at least Exodus to, uh, through through Deuteronomy, we see the warnings of engaging in these different types of practices, especially this practice that was found among many of those individuals that were uh, in the Canaanite region. Not only was it worship of Baal, but it was done through actually sacrificing children. 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, verse 3, mentions that these offerings were made in what's known as the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Now, what's interesting about that is that that's an infamous location of Baal worship. I believe it's in the southern part of Jerusalem. And this this valley... It has references or it has a, uh, a tie to the New Testament period because it is a picture of esch- 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 like end times, eschatology. And so when we read Jesus and he would talk about hellfire multiple times, it's actually in the Greek the word Gehenna, which is a translation and it's a reference to this valley where this bell worship would actually take place and a lot of this child sacrifice would take place. And we're talking about in the area of Jerusalem. Of course, this was a wicked and false way of appeasing gods that weren't even gods. Gods that weren't even gods. So not only does he promote and pass his son through the fire, but we know that he erects all different types of other pagan practices, different types of worship of different types of gods. And as we read this story of Ahaz's reign, we see that there are consequences for himself as well as the kingdom in which he rules over because of these evil ways. Now, three kingdoms to get straight. I've already kind of mentioned two of them. Number one, Judah. If you're like me, it's easy to get confused because there's multiple kingdoms and people groups being referenced. Judah 
is in the south, around the Judean, the area that we know is like Jerusalem and a little bit around it. And the king of Judah, of course, is this individual that's the subject of this message today, Ahaz. Right above them is the kingdom of Israel. Pekah is the king of Israel. Syria, here's where it gets really confusing. There's two different other kingdoms that have that sound similar. Syria and Assyria, not the same, different. In the north, even north of Israel, the kingdom of Israel is Syria. They have a king by the name of Rezin in the context of what we're reading today. And a little bit northeast of Syria is that fourth kingdom, that fourth empire, Assyria. And they have a king or an emperor by the, na- by the name of tiglath Pileser, And we're going to read that here in just a few minutes. So the kingdom of Assyria in the northeast, it was during this period of time, at the very end of the kingdom of, of Israel, was a power that was growing. And it was becoming a threat. And this Assyria, of course, not only was a threat to other people groups, but it was a threat specifically to the kingdom of Israel and to the kingdom of Syria. And so you have Syria and you have Israel and this massive empire to the north of them. Both of them being threatened because of this power of this huge superpower that's right above them. They decide, you know what? Let's join forces. Let's join forces and we'll be stronger to be able to oppose possibly this growing power to the north of us. And not only that, let's go down and somehow take over Ahaz in the south and put a king in place that will join us as well. And so we'll have this protection. We'll have this protection to to join each other and then maybe we'll have a possibility or a chance at fighting against, of course, the, uh, the Assyrian threat. So verse 5 of 2 Kings, we read, Then Rezin, king of Syria, that's the Syrian king, and Pekah, the son of Ramalah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elah for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. And so you see that Ahaz's problems didn't stop with just now Israel and Syria to the north of them, but also is now becoming an issue with other kingdoms, smaller kingdoms in the south, Edom, as well as the Philistines in the southwest. So the results, when we flip it over to 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, we see that 2 Chronicles 28 kind of records the problems that now Ahaz faces. Number one, if you were to read verses 5 through 6, we see that the Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, defeated many parts of Judah and took captive many Judahites to Damascus. We see that Israel, under the hand of Pekah, okay, and part of their besiegement of Judah, 120,000 people in Judah, of Judahites, were killed during that time period. Ahaz's son, his own son, Masai, the officer over his house, Azrakam, and Elkanah, who was second command for Ahaz, were killed. Israel, that is that northern king, Pekah and Israel, during this part, not only did they kill those soldiers, over 100,000, but 200,000 women, sons, and daughters were taken 
to Israel as plunder, to be slaves. They were, when we read the story, eventually brought back because there were actually some righteous men in Israel that argued against this, but yet we see the fall all because of what Ahaz is doing. Judah was attacked again in the south by Edom, and many were carried away as captives from Judah, that is the south. And many cities of Judah were taken by the arch rival, the old rival of the United Kingdom of Israel, the Philistines, including Bathshemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, Soko, Timnah, and Gizmo. In verse 19 of 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, after we read all of these things, I didn't read it, I just kind of listed those things, we're given the reason why the calamity has come upon Judah. It says... For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Unfortunately, this calamity that Ahaz faced did not encourage him or motivate him to turn to God. But rather it motivated him to turn to what he considered the strength of man to flesh and blood. Let's turn over to Isaiah, the seventh chapter, real quick. Isaiah actually brings a word to King Ahaz during this period of time. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to read. We read, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramelah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against him. That's what we just read. But could not prevail against it. Now, when it said it could not prevail against it, they didn't overtake the kingdom of Judah, but they did damage. Verse 2. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart... And the heart of his people were moved as the trees, the woods are moved with the wind. They saw this and they were fearful of this. This is Ahaz and the people of Judah. Then verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear, Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highways to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, talking about resin and Pekah, the king of, of, of Syria and, and uh, Israel. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. Nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. And we actually see that as the Assyrian Empire will eventually come in and take over the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. So that it will not be a people. Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramelah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And so we see that God had plans to judge Israel. And he actually told 
Ahaz, through the prophet Isaiah, about these plans. About his plan to allow Israel to be taken captive by another power, of course, that would become the Assyrians. Now there's an interesting note that I think that we have to think about here. Out of all the things that Ahaz has done, his refusal to be faithful to the covenant, his promotion of evil practices, kind of going back to what David's message was about, which was the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God. After all of those things that he engaged himself in, he, through Isaiah, is pleading with Ahaz to turn back, to turn back, to rely on him, to understand the truths. But unfortunately, Ahaz would refuse to rely on God and instead try to outwit Israel and Syria by forming his own alliance with their enemies, the Assyrian Empire. Let's read on in verses 7 through 9. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Ker, and killed Rezin. And so Ahaz gave Tiglath-Pileser tribute in return for protection. He literally volunteered the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, to be a vassal state. And a vassal state during this period of time is where you almost give homage to another empire in return for protection, which was, of course, a very cowardly move on his part. Here he has Isaiah pleading with him not to be fooled by those two stubs, Rezin and Pekah, but instead of relying on God, he goes and he relies on flesh and blood, on humans. And the other historical note that's interesting here is that as I was reading to prepare this message, uh, I guess that in the area that they now know that where Assyria was, that there is a building uh, of Tiglath-Pileser, there's inscriptions, and there's records, actually, of you know, people and different kingdoms and different kings who did different things, and from what I understand, there's been inscriptions that have been found of Ahaz's name, of course, in his Assyrian name, which was Ahizi, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce that. Uh, but it's, he's listed as one that paid tribute to King Tiglath-Pileser, which just shows that these things that are being written down, they were historical events that took place. And so the efforts that Ahaz went to, when we read, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 16, and we read 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we see all these different things that Ahaz now, who's enamored and thinking that the whole, you know, what, what hinges upon Judah's success is relying on Tiglath-Pileser, this foreign power. And we see that he goes to great pains to impress the Assyrian king. In ver chapter 16 of 2 Kings, we see that he replaces the altar of God in the fashion and design of Assyria's pagan altar. 
And this is a big deal because here we have a king in Judah now engaging in the practices of Israel. It's exactly what the northern kingdom of Israel was doing. We read in verse 14 of 2 Kings chapter 16 that he demoted God's altar to a place of secondary importance and used it to practice pagan divination, something that was strongly outlawed in the law. And verses 17 through 18, he changed several furnishings in the temple. From 2 Chronicles, the 28th chapter, we see that not only does he do those things that 2 Kings 16 told us, but he also sacrificed to new gods, the gods of Damascus. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 22, we read, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And one of the things he did was, is in his mind, he thought, well, look at Syria, look at you know the kingdom of Israel. They're worshiping these different gods, and they seem to be having success. And of course, this is before the Assyrians took them over. If the gods of Israel help them, then maybe if I pay homage to those gods and I emulate those practices that Israel are practicing, maybe, maybe he'll, they, those gods will help me. He also, in verse 24 of 2 Chronicles chapter 28, shut up the doors of the house of God. He set up altars in high places and in every city of Judah in honor of foreign gods. So these are the things, and I went through them really quickly, of course, and I encourage all of us to study these different kings because I think there's a lots of principles that we can derive from these lives of these different kings. The result of Ahaz living a life, especially a life in practicing his kingship, his reign during this period of time, resulted in, of course, him being known as one of the most apostate kings in Judah's history. And not only that, even though 2 Kings 16 verse 20 says that he was buried with his fathers, 2 Chronicles the chapter, chapter 28, the very last verse, verse 27, tells us that even though he was buried with his fathers, he didn't, was, his bones, his tomb, was not brought by the tombs of the kings of Israel which was a sign of dishonor. And so, as I mentioned, I wanted to go through the life of King Ahaz and talk a little bit about the different things that he engaged himself in and ask, what are some spiritual principles that we can infer from this life of this king? Obviously, he's not the only king in Israel. All of them, all those things that are written down. But specifically today, I want us to focus on four things that I think that we can infer from the life of the reign the life and reign of King Ahaz. Number one, God is the source of what is right. Unfortunately, Ahaz did not believe this. He didn't practice this. 2 Kings 16.2 says, He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And what's hard for us living in 2023 is that we can probably look back at these practices and probably think that they're pretty perverse. And in my mind, I say these are universally perverse, meaning like these are perverse no matter what generation you're in. But as I study history and I listen to the different practices of some of these ancient people groups, 
maybe in Ahaz's mind, they weren't that perverse. Maybe they weren't that perverse because they were so common. Now, of course, they were perverse. We know that the Lord and God says they were. But although that Ahaz, you know, he might have looked at these things as normal in the eyes of people in the world that he lived in, they were considered abominations to God. And we have to ask that question today. Are there normal things, normal practices in our world today that we live in that the world says, yeah, that's fine. That's not, not, not that big of a deal. What metric system do we use in determining what's right and wrong? Because I can guarantee you this. If, there's the, if we're using the metric system of this world, we're probably going to get it wrong. The only metric system we can use for what's right and wrong and what God's will is, is through this. My second point that I think we can infer, and by the way, there's many more. I just picked four. God is our source of deliverance, guidance, and protection. Not foreign alliances. God is our source of deliverance, guidance, and protection. What we see from King Ahaz's reign is a man that was not devoted to God, but rather devoted to himself and to whatever power he thought he could appease in order to get what he wanted. Now, in Ahaz's case, it was political. But I don't think that we have to look at this. Of course, we can apply this to leaders that we have today. We can apply this to ourselves and our jobs but I think that we can also apply this to the spiritual world, to our spiritual life. We need to ask ourselves this question. In Ahaz's mind, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Protection was Tiglath-Pileser, the king of the Assyrian Empire. The question we have to ask, who or what is our Assyrian Empire? And what I mean by that is, in times of distress, when they come around, is there any temptation that we have to reach out to something or someone else other than God? Or do we look to ourselves? Do we look to money? Do we look to other people who are successful and we try to emulate them and try to align ourselves with them? I don't think that this is a question that maybe we can we would answer and say well of course we have you know different gods that we worship of course we understand we live in a different world but implicitly when we think about our behaviors our actions our thoughts is our first reaction in times of distress to get on our knees and to reach out to god or is there something else is there in our lives in our hearts Somewhere we need to identify an Assyrian empire that we want to somehow gravitate towards. You know, we've, we've heard lots of messages from this pulpit, and I think one of the human elements, at least in my experience, is when I have struggles, what I try to do is I try to figure it out myself. Even, you know, like big stuff sometimes. You think that, well, I mean, you know the word. You know what, you know, God's promises are, but sometimes it's easy just to think, oh, I'm just going to figure this out. You know, God doesn't care about that. We have to ask ourselves, 
humbly are we coming before God and focusing on Him in times of distress? Do we truly believe, not just a verbal confession, but do we truly believe through our mind and our actions that proves maybe their confession to be true that God is our only deliverer? Not a leader, not a nation, not ourselves or our abilities or our talents or our intelligence, our power or influence. And unfortunately, I think that this is a question that we can apply You know, we live in an age where there's a lot of political factions, right? I'm only 38 years of age, and so I don't have just a whole, I mean, other than studying, I don't have just a whole bunch of reference points in American history, but I can tell you this much. It seems that America is the most divided it's ever been. And I know lots of people, people that I respect and people that I look up to, that sometimes they talk as if the answer is in their political candidate getting elected. I think that we can apply that to this situation. Who's our deliverer? Does that mean that we don't pray for the nation, that we don't pray for godly leaders? Of course it does. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. I don't think voting and things like that is associated with not believing that God's our true deliverer. But I have met people, unfortunately, that talk as if everything hinges upon their political candidate getting put in office. Number three, God is patient, but his judgment is sure. And we heard in the first message about the mercifulness of God. And I think this is the story of God's mercy. Because he long suffered both Israel and Judah And even after Ahaz had participated and led the nation in idolatry, he still was pleading with him. God is long-suffering, but if his voice is not heeded, he will chastise us. He will chastise us. And although he is loving and merciful and long-suffering, there will come a time, and I think this is even part of God's mercy, that he will allow the consequences to take place of our actions. And strangely, I think that that's actually a sign of mercy because he knows that might be what gets us awake. That might wake us up. And if he doesn't, then we'll just continue believing and acting in the same way and maybe further destruction or problems or calamities could befall us. And my last one, our sinful decisions and acts can have a negative consequence not just on us, but on those around us. We see that Judah, they were subject to Ahaz's decisions. I'm sure there were many people in Judah, of course, that participated in these practices that Ahaz was promoting, but there was probably a lot of innocent individuals that suffered the consequences, as we see many different stories, of Ahaz's decisions specifically his decision to turn Judah away from God. I think this is a message for everyone, no matter what walk or what title in life that we have, but especially leaders, parents, teachers, if you're a supervisor at work and you have people under you, 
course, ministers and pastors, anyone in Christian ministry. You know, for me, I think about this, you know, in terms of when we look at uh, that saying that he did not follow after the ways of his father David, talking about Ahaz. And it gets me thinking about that, that theme all throughout the scriptures from generation to generation. It's an interesting study if you ever look at that phrase and how it's used in the Bible. Uh, it's this idea that God has given, whether it be his covenant, his ways, and the expectation is, and we go all the way back to like the book of Deuteronomy, that from generation to generation, the precepts and the ways of God are passed on. And so as a parent, one of the things I've thought about a lot is, is it's made me think about the blessings that I've had, the blessings I've had as a son to, and a grandson to what I believe is godly grandparents and godly parents. And then I think about myself and the great responsibility I have to replicate that to my own children. But not only am I blessed to have godly grandparents and parents, because I think that this, even if you don't have parents, this goes beyond that. When I think about my upbringing, it's inclusive of this congregation. Because I grew up in this congregation, and many of you who are older than me, and that's not a put down, okay, but that were, you know, uh, had a part in molding me and who I am. And having fond memories of growing up in this church, and looking, and in, 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 in now I'm older, I, you know, I, I, I didn't maybe appreciate it as much back then, but I, I realize the stewardship that was given to you, many of you individuals for this church, in upholding the ways of God and making smart decisions and taking seriously, maybe if you served on the board of trustees and things like that. And now that I'm older, I realize the great responsibility that I have to pass that on to the next generation and to not take lightly what was handed to me and to all of us this age. A congregation that's healthy and vibrant and, you know, that sometimes we don't always get along, we don't always agree with, with, with each other, but I think most of us would agree that it feels like a family and feels like you were a part of helping raise a previous generation and hopefully this current generation that's around my age is going to do the same thing for the generation after. And the reason I bring that out, and I'm kind of, obviously this wasn't in my notes, is that it makes me think about consequences, whether it be us as parents, supervisors, whether we're a political leader or not, a minister, or it doesn't have to be a minister, in ministry. Ministry is not just people who are pastors that pastor a church. There's so many different ministries within the body of Christ. And Christ has given us a gift. And he expects us to use those things. And do not underestimate the power of the gift that God has given you in your ministry. And it might be a ministry of praying. It might be a ministry in, in, in service, to whether it be food or whether it be uh, helping with the grounds of the church or whatever it may be. You, as David kind of mentioned earlier in his message, we're all to reflect the light of Christ in our lives. And so our decisions and acts can have a negative consequence, not on just us, but on those around us.
and that's something that we have to remember. So in conclusion, I know this message was a little shorter than maybe I realized it would be. Uh, I was thinking about today's February the 4th, and in two months, I believe, the evening of April the 4th is our Passover night. Could be wrong, but I think that's, if I'm correct, it's, it's April the 4th. So that means we're two months away, this, e- this evening we'll be two months away from partaking in the Passover of the year 2023, which is wild to say. And so I think every message, every year that we, you know, every time we open up the Bible every day, we're supposed to be striving to be more in line with Christ, to you know, let that mind which was in Christ be in us. But I think that it's a good reminder that we're getting close to Passover again. And we need to start thinking about, you know, our devotion to God, as we always are. But during this time of year, as we approach that, let's be thinking about reorienting ourselves and our devotion to God. Examining our lives. Examining where our devotion is. Examining where, you know, we go in times of stress or distress. And so with that, I'd just like to conclude, I do encourage you, you know, to read these keys, to study them, to study their actions. Uh, I think that they're a blessing. There's so many lessons that we can learn and studying about these individuals, the good ones and the bad ones, and see the, how God works. You know, how God works in human history and how he's worked in human history. Because it's interesting, as David mentioned, we have a personal God. And so you can read these stories in the Old Testament, these, you know, these stories of the kings, and you see that God's dealing with a nation. But even in the midst of him dealing with nations as a whole, he was still a personal God. And we see he would personally deal with people on an individual basis. And the number one thing that we see all throughout scriptures, from Genesis to Revelations, is that God, he judges the heart. He sees people's hearts, and he sees where they are. And we have to ask ourselves, where is our heart? That's what God sees. He doesn't see the external thing. He sees where our heart is. And so with that, let us pray to God, let us devote ourselves, and let us make sure our heart is in line with the ways of God, with the precepts of God, with the expectations that God has for people who are truly followers of him.